Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We say this during the Easter season, but probably we should say it all year long. The resurrection, perhaps the most important event in the Christian calendar. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So, he is risen. He is risen indeed. So in this period of time, between the events of Easter and the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, there are these very few vignettes, these accounts of the interactions between the risen but not yet ascended Jesus. On Easter Sunday, Ryan told us the story of the first sightings at the scene of the empty tomb and the effects that it had on those who discovered it. Excitement, puzzlement, even doubt in some cases. Last week, in the story we have come to know as as the story of Doubting Thomas, Colin talked about faith and doubt and about the importance of our faith community as we walk together in those moments of great faith certainty, but equally as much as we walk in moments when we may have doubt and wonderment and questions. One thing that stood out for me from Colin's sermon last week as I listened to it at the lake where it snows every morning, um, I was listening to it on the computer, and the thing that popped out for me was the statement that said, Christ showed us his wounds so we don't have to hide ours. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about a good friend of mine, Kathy Nichol, who taught me when I was a teenager. And she said she was the founder and leader, one of the founders and leaders of Pioneer Ranch Camp. And she said, if you find sermons boring or hard to follow, just look for one thing. It's good advice for any talk you go to. I used to use it when I went to medical conventions. Just look for one thing that really stands out for you. It's the same teaching that we do with the spiritual practice of Lectio Divina. That one thing, the one word, the one phrase that rings or sings or stings. And when you find that one nugget... You take it with you and you mull over it for a period of time. Jesus shows us his wounds so we don't have to hide ours. I mulled over this all week. Thanks, Colin. So back to the matter at hand. The other post-resurrection story that we aren't going to be talking about is that is very familiar is the account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But that's in Luke's gospel, and we are currently journeying with John, so we don't get that story. So our story today is also very familiar. It's the account of Jesus on the beach with the disciples. The chronology is a little bit puzzling. Somehow or other, we have left Jerusalem and arrived at the Sea of Galilee without much explanation from John how we got here. So let's pray as we prepare to delve into today's passage. Lord, open our hearts to receive you. Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. May your Holy Spirit surround and guide us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So this story's pretty familiar. It goes like this. Peter was probably feeling pretty discombobulated, considering all the ups and downs of the last couple of weeks' events. So he decides to return to something familiar, something comforting, something safe, an activity so familiar he can lose himself in it. Do you know this place? A retreat to some form of normal when life is just too complicated or too confusing to face. A simple place, a simple activity, just to try to restore some form of perspective, maybe even a sense that some part of your life is under control. I know this place. I clean house. I got it from my mother. It helps for a while. So Peter is down by the sea, the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Lake of Galilee. And it's apparently evening. Six of the other disciples are there as well. Nathaniel, Thomas, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two unknown disciples. Peter announces, I am going to go fishing. And the other disciples look at one another and say, We'll go with you. So all seven of them climb into the boat and head out. Did they talk to one another? Were they busy discussing all the events that had taken place? We don't actually know. Perhaps there was the easy silence that often accompanies the experience of fishing, each of them lost in their own thoughts each of them trying to make some sense out of this whirlwind of events that started with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, the upper room, the Last Supper, the trial, the crucifixion, the death, the placing of Jesus in the tomb, and then the empty tomb, and then Jesus appearing to some of them in the garden, and then to all of them in the locked room, It was a roller coaster of emotions. I can't even imagine what it would have been like. So they fish all night. Hard, hard work. Did it help them forget for a few moments their questions, their bewilderment? Maybe. All night, no fish. Daybreak comes. A little red appears on the horizon. Tired, hungry, And not that far from shore, they hear a voice, a person on the beach. Children, you have no fish, have you? No, they answer, nothing at all. Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Really? Well, they had nothing to lose, so they did as they were told. And we are told that they caught so many fish that they couldn't even pull the net into the boat. And then, just like the breaking of the dawn, understanding crept in. And John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And what did Peter do? Well, Peter, true to his reputation being a man of action, he grabs his clothes, leaps into the water, and swims to shore, leaving his compatriots to fend for themselves. So Peter arrives on the beach soaking wet. And shortly after, his fellow disciples arrive, 
hauling in this big load of what we were told was 153 fish. Jesus was there on the beach. He had a charcoal fire going and was cooking fish, and he also had bread. He asked them for some more fish, maybe so they could contribute to the feast. And what profound words does Jesus, the Christ, the risen Lord, have for them? Come and have breakfast. Yeah, he said, come and have breakfast. I think they knew and they didn't know who it was. The scripture says no one dared ask him who he was. They knew it was the Lord. But I think some part of them knew and some part of them was still trying to figure this all out. It was all so incredible, almost impossible to get head and heart and senses all on the same page. And Jesus gave them fish and bread to eat. So as I was reading up on this, uh, all the background to this story in the last couple of weeks, I did a lot of thinking about this resurrection body of Jesus. It's kind of a puzzle to me. He was recognizable, but not immediately so. Presumably incorruptible, but still bearing scars. Able to materialize in locked rooms and appear in different places, but still hungry and cooking. I guess it will all be answered someday when we all experience what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death that amazing day when we too will receive our resurrection bodies. But in the here and now, what does this all mean? I think our scripture gives us a hint as it carries on here in this interaction between Peter and Jesus. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks, do you love me a third time? And this time Peter was really hurt. And I don't know exactly what the body language was that was going on, but I can imagine that he gave a bit of a sigh and said, You know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I've heard many sermons concentrating on the nuances between the words that were used for love and the slightly different invitations offered by Jesus here. But sometimes I think the simplest interpretation is right. Three denials, three opportunities for Peter to declare his love for Jesus, three invitations from Jesus to join him in caring for humanity. Jesus asks, he asks all of us, do you love me? If the answer is yes, or even a tentative, I think so, or maybe even 
I really want to. Then Jesus says, love one another, help one another, be my love for your neighbor, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So we have this resurrected Jesus. And again, I quote Paul, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. And this is a stumbling block for many. There are lots of people who don't consider themselves Christians, who believe that Jesus lived, that he taught, that he was a great teacher, maybe even a prophet. And a lot of them have no trouble with the fact that he was put to death by the Roman authorities. They can believe that, and many would admit that he didn't deserve this kind of death. But where the rubber hits the road is the, re- is the resurrection. Now, when I was in seminary, we were given an assignment to write an essay, an argument, really, that proved the resurrection. I was in the spiritual formation pathway, and I gave myself the liberty of doing the assignment a little bit differently. I wrote the script for a one-day contemplative retreat based around the resurrection. And I sent it in and waited for the, what kind of a reply I would get. And I must say, I got some, a little bit of a condescending reply from the professor. He said, my retreat was probably nice, but it hadn't really proved the resurrection. I knew very well what was being asked for. Points like, if Jesus didn't rise, he was a scoundrel or deluded, and certainly not divine, or a liar, because he had promised he would rise again in three days. Probably the biggest proof that I have read about of the resurrection, and I think this holds considerable weight, is the transformation in the disciples after the resurrection. How this band of scared followers locked up in a room became this group of missionaries that risked everything and took the gospel, the good news, to all parts of the known world. I knew all this and more, but to me, this is head knowledge, and I have nothing against head knowledge. I'm very fond of my head knowledge, but maybe faith demands more. Maybe faith invites more. At some point in each of our lives, we approach that empty tomb, maybe in fear or longing, in doubt, in hope, maybe all of the above. We stoop down and peer into the mouth of the tomb and wonder. And the amazing miracle is this. The Holy Spirit meets us there. We are prodded, invited, moved to open our hearts to the mystery of the resurrection, to let the resurrected Jesus say to us, I love you, dwell in my love. Let my Holy Spirit fill you with my love. Follow me, then go out and feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Today we gather at the Lord's table In almost all the resurrection stories, there is a mention of food and feeding. Christ feeds us and sustains us. 
There is a looking back, a remembrance at this table, a grateful remembrance of all that Jesus has done for us. He asked us to do this, to remember him in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine. But there is also a looking forward. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that he has overcome death, and a day will come when he comes again and makes all things new. Come to the table of our resurrected Lord. Hear Jesus call to you. Come and have breakfast. Amen.